It's hard to tell a street preacher to limit his sermon to a certain amount of time. We have to go. We have to repeat ourselves multiple times out there on the streets because folks just don't get it. So we kind of get used to that in here. But before we start this morning, I want to give a brief testimony of this past week from our long walk across America. Uh, two weeks ago, we logged 112 miles. This week was a little short. We logged 60 miles. I, I don't know why I said 36 in the update I sent out this week, but we logged about 60 miles. And uh, we did something that made us very happy. We finally crossed into Catawba County. So Catawba County was never so precious to me as it was on Thursday when we walked across the Catawba River there on Highway 127. So I want to give a shout out to Grant and to Matt and their wives. They came with us on Thursday, walked with us for the day, were there when we had quite a few encounters, and we just really, really enjoyed the fellowship. So you guys are welcome anytime to join us. The amazing thing is we walked 11 miles on Thursday of last week, all of it in Hickory, and it was one of our most fruitful days in terms of the numbers of encounters we had. And I even praise God because there's some folks I know in that part of Hickory that I've interacted with just through going into their stores or getting a coffee or whatever. Folks I've wanted to give a track to for some time and for whatever reason it just never happened. But we were able to pop into stores and say, hey, what's going on? I walked here, you know, and give a track to some folks. So, uh, uh, you know, at a coffee bus, the guy running the coffee bus even agreed to stay an extra 30 minutes so we could get there and have a cold brew yesterday afternoon. So, and I've also got a standing employee discount for as long as I need at an outdoor, comp- an outdoor supply company up there in 127 because of our testimony. So I praise God for that. We made it to our martial arts dojo on Thursday night just in time to help with a floor project. And so let it be said that three martial arts instructors back in their day walked 661 miles to get to class and made it on time. So I can grow old and I can tell my grandkids, when I was young, I walked 660 miles to get to the dojo. And I did it in heat, rain, cold, storm, and I made it on time. So that would be a truthful story. So I praise God for those things. Uh, So we made it to Catawba County. And I want to introduce uh, today's message by something that caught my eye. There's a lot of things that catch my eye as we're out on the highways and hedges uh, sharing the gospel. A lot of things catch my eye. I have a lot of time to think and meditate. Things that we as Christians are often too busy to do. We read the scriptures. We may even meditate upon them. I mean, we may even memorize them. But how often do we meditate upon the scriptures? Think about them, what they mean. But I saw something that really impressed me, and I don't know if anybody would even appreciate this, and I don't know anything about this particular church. This little church is in Hickory. I walked by it yesterday, the other afternoon. I don't know anything about it. I don't know who the pastor is. I don't know what they teach. But what I do know is that this Sunday, the pastor is going to preach from what I call the unknown Bible. Never in my entire life. Have I ever heard a sermon preached from the little epistle of 2 John that I can remember? 2 John is part of what I call the unknown Bible. It's the untouchable scriptures that preachers won't touch with a 10-mile pole. The unknown Bible includes 2 John, 3 John, 
2 Peter, Jude, part of 2 Peter at least. All of Revelation, nobody touches that. Most of the minor prophets, nobody wants to touch it. Because, I don't know why, maybe people are afraid to say what they really think about certain parts of Scripture. Or maybe they don't want to take a position because it might offend somebody or ostracize somebody. But I was very encouraged that a pastor here in this area is going to preach from 2 John today. Now, 2 John is an interesting little book. It only has one chapter and 13 verses. But there are some profound things in there that fly in the face of everything American society stands for today. Did you know there in 2 John it is written to an elect church body? 3 John is written to an individual remnant believer. 2 John is written to a local church body that is a remnant body, like I consider this one to be, in the midst of many apostate bodies. And John addresses this church not as mother church, holy mother, or any of this garbage you get out of Catholicism, but the church is referred to as an elect lady. She's a lady, guys. The church is a lady, not a foul-mouthed, unkempt harlot. Not a mother, per se, but a lady. And John greets this body and, and speaks of his local church as thy elect sister. I send greetings. So do we treat the church as a lady when we come in here? Do we treat each other with that respect that a lady deserves? That's something profound in there. This sermon's called Truth and Love. Second John tells us that there's no such thing as love that's not rooted in truth. Homosexuals don't love each other. It's impossible because love is rooted in truth. There's no such thing as love without truth. Now that flies in the face of our modern day society and maybe that's why most preachers won't touch this book with a 10 mile pole. We also learn that science in modern day American culture is the spirit of Antichrist. Because 2 John tells us that whosoever denies that Messiah is come in the flesh and that He rules and reigns is the spirit of Antichrist. Most of what's called science in our society today denies that. So we know it's the spirit of Antichrist. The Bible tells us in 2 John how we're supposed to deal with false teachers who come to our door. Preachers won't touch us with a 10-foot pole. I love to watch people get on Facebook and boast about how some Mormons came to our house the other night and we invited them in we had dinner and we sat down and we got to talk about some things. Uh, excuse me. The Bible says not to bid them Godspeed. Not to bring them into your home. Not to bring false teachers in because you are partaker of their evil deeds. You know, maybe the church is so tolerant today because the preacher never preached on 2 John. You know, we just want to bring everybody in, love on everybody. The Bible says that's wicked. And it's right there in that little epistle of 2 John. So there is an unknown Bible. And I don't mean unknown in the sense of we can't know it. We just refuse to talk about it. And 2 John is one of those epistles. 3 John, Jude, most of Revelation. The most applicable part of Scripture given to us today in these last days are red letters from Jesus Himself. Revelation 2 and 3, the message to the seven churches. How often do you hear that preached about? <clears throat> People avoid it. 
They don't want to talk about the coming of Christ. And maybe the reason is because people are afraid to discuss details that they might not understand. Or maybe they're afraid to take a position because someone else might have another position. That doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about these things. So I was encouraged by this sign. And I, I trust this preacher will preach a powerful message on the relationship between truth and love today. I would just challenge you guys to get into that unknown Bible. Read those little epistles. They're there for a reason. You can memorize them. Look at, read the Minor Prophets. You know, knowing when the Minor Prophets lived and what was going on in Israel at the time sheds a whole lot of light. My family and I are, are studying the, the divided monarchy of Israel and the different kings. And we left the book of Kings during the reign of Jeroboam II to go into the Minor Prophets. Who knows who the earliest writing prophet is? Who appeared first on the scene in the Old Testament time? The earliest of the writing prophets. And he was a historical person. He's mentioned by name not only by Jesus, but also in the book of Kings. It was Jonah. He was the earliest. And so the context of when Jonah lived, he lived in a very MAGA time when Israel had a king that wanted to make Israel great again. Very conservative, very Trump-like. And yet God sent His prophets pointing their fingers. Pointing their fingers at that wickedness that we fall, we've fallen for in this country. We believe the lies. Why do we believe the lies? Because we don't know that unknown Bible. We don't read it. We don't think about it. Get into the unknown Bible. God sent prophets to point their fingers at conservative rulers in Israel and Judah. Not to go to rallies, but to point the finger. You are the man. And that's what we need in this country. But we don't have it from the church because we don't know that unknown Bible. So anyway, that kind of sums up this past week. And I want to remind you of something before we get in the text today. Revelation 21. I've been going back and reformatting some of these messages so that everybody can have the entire podcast. And I encourage you, if you have a chance, to listen to the introduction messages to the book. Now, these were preached back in 2013. Many of you folks weren't here. Some of the core of the membership was here. You guys remember that. I don't even remember if this house is where we started doing it or not. It seems like I sat in Gigi's living room a couple times. But I just don't remember. Um, And so I said something very clear and very plain in that first message. And I want to make sure you guys understand that. This is more so for the people that have come since. That, you know, we're in like message 154 from Revelation now. Um, but I said in that first message that I do not expect you all to understand or to agree with every detail of prophecy in this book as I preach it. I don't expect that, okay? I confess that there are many things in here that are true, but any man who thinks he's got all of God's revelation figured out apart from the Holy Spirit is in a dangerous place. But as a preacher, guys, I owe it to you to tell you what I think. Now, you can do with that what I hope... What, what You can do with that what I... I hope you will do with that what the Bereans did when Paul came. 
What made the Bereans in, 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 uh, after Thessalonica there in Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 16, what made them notable in Paul the preacher's eyes is that they didn't just believe what he said. They didn't just accept it. It says that they went and searched the Scriptures to make sure that what they were hearing was so and that they understood it. And so I encourage you afresh as we talk about some of these things, some topics I got into last week, that you guys would search the Scriptures. But know this, I owe it to you as the elect lady, the church, to tell you what I think. I don't want to be one of these guys that thinks something else up here, but I'm not going to tell you because I care more about whether or not you'll like me or I care more about... I'm not in a position where I have to worry about if I'm going to get a paycheck this week. Yeah, I'm not in that position. So I'm not like a lot of these guys. So I want you guys to just listen. And, 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 and if it encourages you to go study the Scriptures and to think about things in a different light, then I've accomplished my purpose. If you go and you study the Scriptures as a result of this preaching then I've accomplished my purpose before the Lord, which is to encourage the believer to be like the Bereans. I don't want to be that preacher that just, you just believe it because Jesse said it. I actually can't stand that. I don't want, no, but study the scriptures. But I do owe it to you guys to tell you what I think. And I wouldn't say something from this pulpit unless I truly believed it. Okay? And if I believe something, now I know this kind of this runs in the face of modern day math and critical race theory. But if I believe something, then obviously I think I'm right or I wouldn't believe it. I mean, why would you expect me to believe something and not think I'm right? I mean, I'm, I'm wrong once in a while, or I think I am. But if I believe something, I think I'm right. Not because I'm good or I'm prideful or I know everything, but because I've come to that place. And in saying so, I want to be like Luther. And I think you guys should try to be like Martin Luther. Martin Luther was raked over the coals for what to us seemed like simple spiritual truths in the Scriptures that had been neglected. And for him to stand on that salvation by faith, the authority of the Scriptures made him a laughingstock in the days of the Reformation. And he was brought before a show trial, a kangaroo court, and they demanded of him at Wittenberg, not at, uh, at, at Worms, that he would recant and take back these foolish things that he said that went against the church, that went against science of the day. And Luther said, look, if you can show me with Scripture and with logic that I have erred, then I will recant. But until that point, here I stand, God help me. So guys, if you can show me with scripture or with logic where I've said something that isn't correct, I'm all ears. But until that time, this is where I stand. So help me God. And I love you guys enough that I'm willing to tell you what I think. And I'm also willing to tell you it's time to search the scriptures and not just be lazy and say, well, Jesse said this. It must be true. No, 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 no. That's, that's lazy. Get into scriptures and check them out for yourself. I don't expect you folks to agree with every little detail. We're going to get into the New Jerusalem and, and the details the scriptures give us. And I'm going to share some things I think about this and that. 
Maybe you don't agree. That's fine. What this precious stone is and what that is, it's important because God revealed it to us. But what's more important is that you search the Scriptures to see whether or not the things that are spoken are true. And here's how you know the spirit of Christ versus Antichrist. In a man's preaching, if his preaching leads you away from the overbearing truth that Jesus Christ is God come in the human flesh, then you need to be weary. You're wary. But if his preaching points you to a king, to a creator God who came in human flesh, then listen. See what he has to say. I would like to think that I've never steered you away from the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Because he is. And we know these false teachers out here because they deny that. And we need to stop thinking that that only can be seen and discerned in the church realm. It can be seen and discerned in our political realm. It can be seen and discerned in our cultural realm. Those that deny Jesus has come in the flesh, I don't care what kind of degrees they have. They're the spirit of Antichrist. They can't be trusted. And it's always a good practice, guys, to vehemently question known liars. That's something you also find out about in 2 John. Question known liars. If you guys are question known liars, you're... You're going you're to put yourself in a good position to know the truth. So, that being said, we were looking at Revelation 21 last week. I got into verse 1, and I titled that message, No More See. Okay? You guys can go back and listen to that. We got into some biblical cosmology. Biblical cosmology is one of those topics that people don't want to talk about. Just like biblical chronology. Just like the biblical text or Bible versions. People don't want to talk about that. But Satan from time immemorial has attacked the text of God's word. He's attacked God's creation. And he's attacked God's history prophesied beforehand and fulfilled in an effort to cause us to doubt God and to be deceived into thinking that we're gods. It's the same strategy. And most of his agents are card-carrying members of the yea, God hath said society. Yeah, God said it, but it really means something else. I mean, we, we have science now, as if science is an institution when in truth it's a process. It's a pursuit. And if we pursue truth, we are scientists. That's what we are. So a man who pursues truth can't be a science denier. I've said it many times that I consider myself a scientist. I pursue truth. I test conclusions. I look at God's word. That makes me a scientist. But a kid that goes to a college and gets a philosophy degree and can repeat what he's told by his professor, he ain't a scientist. You know, most of these modern day scientists are philosophers. They're not scientists. And so we need to be those that test what we hear, test the truth. And that's what the Bible tells us to do. But in chapter 21, verse 1, we, talk, we begin to look at the, ver, the, the chapter verse by verse. 
John sees two things. These are the last visions he gets of his entire vision that covers the church age, the tribulation, and the millennium. And now we're in the new heaven and the new earth. God, we see that God's plans are neat and orderly. There's a reason God told the church to do everything decent and in order. It's because God does things decent and in order. And so these are the last of the visions John sees when he's been transported into heaven from the Isle of Patmos. In chapter 22, we come back to Patmos and we have an epilogue or a conclusion. So John sees two things here. He sees a new heaven and a new earth. And in this new heaven and this new earth, there is no more sea. And then he sees the holy city of God, God's tabernacle coming down out of heaven to earth to dwell with men. And last week, I I talked a little bit about that phrase, no more sea, because it is a clue. It is a key that sheds light on biblical cosmology. It's not talking about the Atlantic or Pacific. It's talking about the great firmament that separates God from His creation. We've seen the sea in Revelation. It's a sea of glass where God's throne is. It begins to melt by chapter 15. Chapter 19, it opens and Christ comes down at Armageddon and now it's gone. In the new heaven and new earth, God will be with His people just like He was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve walking with them in the cool of the day. It won't be this barrier that man wants to try to break and wants to set himself up with God. That, that gives us cause for rejoicing. And I thought that that gave us an interesting opportunity to look at some elements of biblical cosmology. That sea mentioned is the waters above the firmament that Job says hide God's throne. They're frozen. And the mention of it here is a springboard to talk about some things. So we just looked at a few things. I wanted to just draw your attention to what the Bible says about God's creation versus what quote-unquote scientists have told us is absolute truth. And I think we can question these things in the day and time in which we live. I don't have the answers. I don't claim to understand how God's creation works beyond his revelation. Only fools do that. Job, his friends, Elihu, the young man, they thought they knew how everything worked. And then God came along and said, and spoke, who is this darkening my counsel with words without knowledge? Let me tell you a little bit about how my creation works. And the last thing God uses there in the book of Job to show them they don't know what they're talking about isn't a galaxy or a star or a mighty earthquake, or anything like that, it's Satan himself. You don't even understand Satan, the Leviathan. Put your hand on him. You do well to remember the battle and say nothing else. He's king of all the children of pride. You don't even know him, and yet you think you know my creation. So God makes a point we would all do well to remember, especially when we live amongst people who think they know everything. That is a people that is setting itself up for utter destruction. So I left you last week with a few things that the Bible says. Now you can do with it whatever you please, but it seems to run amok. Biblical cosmology on the surface seems to run amok of NASA cosmology. It just does. 
And the last thing I got into, which I probably shouldn't have laid in the day, and I'm not going to get into it today, is that the Bible tells us in Psalm 93 that the earth is fixed, that is established, it doesn't move. That's what the Bible says. Now, there are preachers out there, some of them we would probably greatly respect, who would explain that away. And I don't think we have to do that with the Scriptures. We've studied enough here in Revelation that we know God's Word means what it says. And there are actual scientific experiments. I won't get into it, but if you're interested, you can go look these up. The Aries Experiment, A-R-Y-S, 1871. The Michelson-Morland Experiment, 1887. And the Sanyak Experiment, 1913. These experiments demonstrated through scientific testing and observation that the earth is motionless, okay? Now, Einstein came around and admitted that these experiments were a great embarrassment to their cosmology. And that's when he came up with the theory of relativity. The theory of relativity was designed to cause all of us to question what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears and what we know to be true from experience. Very clever. Because the theory of relativity can't be tested. It can't be proven. It assumes something that cannot be known, that the speed of light is always constant. We can't know that because we don't even have the ability to test it. It's very clever. And it's been a tool whereby Satan has deceived us into thinking that we are the product of our own making and we don't need God, that we will be as God. Guys, we need to be wary of that stuff. Should we be surprised by that? Look at what the CDC has done this last year. They have taken and they have thrown a conclusion out there that we can't test. And what it means is that contrary to everything we've grown up learning about how diseases are transmitted and germs, contrary to that, any of us at any point in time could be completely sick and we could be a danger to others. Even though we don't feel sick, even though we have no symptoms, we could just be sick and we could be a danger. So you guys need to put masks on. You need to stay home. You need to do what we say. Now, why would we be surprised that the powers that be are doing that now when they've done it before? Guys, growing up, the word asymptomatic never meant without symptoms. Never meant that. It always meant that someone who is asymptomatic shows very little symptoms that affect them. But there were always symptoms. I got to where over the years I became asymptomatic to giardia, giardasis, the bacteria you can find in dirty water. I got giardia enough times it doesn't bother me anymore. But that doesn't mean I was completely without symptoms. I was asymptomatic. I didn't have the bloating. I didn't have the terrible diarrhea. I didn't have the weakness, but if I had it, I had minor symptoms that would cause me to be an offense to others, not an offense to myself, because uh, GR, Giardia gives you some foul-smelling flatulence. So I was asymptomatic based on that, but it didn't bother me. But it didn't mean that I was normal and that I had no idea something was wrong. But now, all of a sudden, we've been told you can be asymptomatic and be completely healthy. So these type of things are used. They're not testable. They're not provable. But they're used to control us and to turn us from God, just like all of this has. It's a real sickness. It has affected people. It's affected people's families in this church. There's no doubting that. But 
we have been drawn away from our trust in the Lord and the church. And that's why so many people fear a virus that, for the great majority of people, is not a problem at all. And yet they don't fear the one that made everything we can see in the heavens at night. And that just is profound, but it's nothing new. It's Satan's strategy from day one to draw us away from God's creation and God's truth. Now, I find it very interesting when we talk about God's universe and what he created. There's a few things that are a big problem for what the quote-unquote scientists of today say who don't experiment. They just draw conclusions based upon mathematical equations that I demonstrated last week to be wrong. Turn to Joshua chapter 10. The Bible says that the earth is motionless and doesn't move, it's fixed. I don't claim to know what that means, but I do know what it says. And there's an interesting story in Joshua chapter 10 that would agree with what the psalmist said. God told Joshua that he had delivered the Canaanites into his hand. In chapter 10 verse 9, Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night and the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Oram and smote them to Azekah and to Machedah. I know where Azekah is. Eric and I have hiked up there. You can look down on the valley. It's very close to where David slew Goliath. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Oram that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. There were more which died with the hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. The Bible says that God has a big, huge storehouse of hail and ice that He uses in the day of judgment. And it's up there with that firmament somewhere. That's what it says. And that's what He did. He threw down hail from the firmament we talked about last week and discomfited them and destroyed them. Then spake Joshua, this is profound in verse 11, in the Lord, to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said, in the sight of Israel, so Joshua didn't say it in a quiet little prayer, he said it in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ahalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves, avenged themselves upon their enemies. Then it goes on to say at the end of verse 13, So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. Joshua spoke aloud to the sun and the moon to stand still, and we're told that the sun stopped and the moon stopped. We're not told that the earth stopped spinning around. We're told the sun stopped and the moon stopped. Now, that's a problem if we believe everything we're told about how the universe works. Mm. My point here is not to explain that to you. My point is to get you to question known liars and to let's believe what the Bible says. So biblical cosmology really does find the face of NASA cosmology, but not in the face of scientific cosmology. If you go back and study some of the scientists from the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, some that were God-fearing, God-believing folks. Hezekiah, 2 Kings chapter 20, it says that the, sun, the shadow on the sundial went backward 10 degrees. 
The sun moved backward 10 degrees. Do we believe that? I mean, it was a miracle. God did it. Do we believe it? If we can't trust these things to mean what they say, how can we trust John 3.16? But you might ask yourself, you know, so the last thing I had talked about, the, the, the Bible seems to teach that the earth is fixed and doesn't move. And you might ask yourself, why in the world is this important? Why does this matter? Well, it matters because Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we need to prove all things. Prove means to test. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, prove or test all things. John tells us, try every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they be from God because many false prophets are going out into the world. So it's important to try and to test such things. God's Word says to. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a realist that believes that from the Garden of Eden there's been one giant conspiracy of the father of lies to overthrow God's plan and purpose on this earth. And it's a conspiracy that fails time and time and time again and will ultimately fail. But the Bible tells me to prove all things. We ought to be questioning things. That doesn't mean we understand them or we should get mad at somebody because they don't question it the same way we do. But it's a good thing to question everything except for God's Word. It's a good thing to test. But why is it important? You know, what we're told today is really no different than what was happening in Israel, in Babylon, in Pergamos, in Rome, as Satan's headquarters has moved throughout the years. I think his headquarters today is in Washington, D.C., personally. It was in Babel. It did move to Pergamos. That's an interesting message, the message to the church at Pergamos. I would encourage you to go back and listen to how the Adelan priest kings fled Babylon and then deeded everything to Rome, and Satan picked up. Jesus said his seat was in Pergamos. Then he picked up and moved to Rome with the Caesars. Then he was with the popes. And then he, at some point, he did what the early colonists did. He picked up shop and he sailed across the ocean. He's planted himself in Washington, D.C. That's where Satan's seat is today. Jesus told the church at Pergamos that they lived where Satan's seat is. There is a spiritual realm, guys. There is a spiritual realm. And we better, we do well to heed it. Satan's seat's right up there on the uh, 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 Potomac River, rest assured. We need to call it what it is. We need to call it what it is. But um, these things are important because in Israel's day, there were men doing what men do today. They weren't worshiping the Creator. They were worshiping the Son. They were worshiping the heavenly bodies. They think they knew everything about it. And this heliocentrism that's been shoved down our throats by NASA and the scientists all our lives is nothing but sun worship. It puts the sun at the center of all things. The great sun, 93 million miles away. How in the world someone could ever calculate that, I don't know. Voyager, it's been traveling for 43 years, guys. There's a counter you can go to online and it's ticking the miles. Voyager, it was designed with a five-year shelf life. But amazingly... In the 1980s, the gods of NASA were able to reprogram Voyager, upload some files, and a five-year shelf life is still ticking it 43 years later. Guys, you can't even make this stuff up. 
How does it fuel itself? How does it move in a vacuum? How is it still working? Now, I've driven thousands of miles around this country in my lifetime, over 100,000 miles, lots of roads. And I can't say to you that I have driven all over this country and not had a wreck, not run over something, and not have something hit me. It happens. Who in here drives multiple miles and has driven their whole life and has never had something hit you behind the wheel of a car? Okay, I'm supposed to believe that something's been traveling for 43 years and it's never been hit, never been hit by an asteroid. I mean, come on. It's amazing that the garbage we believe. Disneyland, we've got a question known liars that worship the sun, that worship the creature and not the creator. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 8. I think this is something that's applicable because... We all need to be yanked up by the hair on our head, by the Spirit of God, and thrust down in the halls of our society, and we need to be shown exactly the level of evil that is going on. Because we're all naive. We all think it's not near as bad as it really is. Ezekiel 8 and 9, I encourage you to read those, these chapters this week. I'm not going to read them all. But Ezekiel is in the land of Babylon. He's been taken captive. This is about five years before the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. Ezekiel is taken captive. He's part of the captivities. And then God begins to speak to him. To preach to the captives. And he tells him, look Ezekiel, these guys are not going to listen to you. But they're rebellious. They're deceived. But they will know there's a prophet that's been among them. And Ezekiel began to preach against these lies. These captives were thinking, you know what? We're not going to build houses. We're not going to get comfortable because there's a secret plan. You know the same lies they told us all on January 6th. Secret plan. Mike Pence is involved. The military is going to save us all. There's a plan. We're going to get to go home. This will be a short-lived captivity. Babylon's not going to destroy the city. Don't listen to these prophets. There's a secret plan to take the government back. You know, the same lies we believe. But God said, uh-uh, there ain't no plan. I'm going to raise that temple to the ground. It's a den of iniquity. And then we're told in chapter 8 that God took Ezekiel by the lock of his head and in a vision he jerked him out by the river Kebar and took him over and stuck him right down in the middle of the temple there in Jerusalem. The only person that ever went to Jerusalem in a vision that flew there and stood there was not Muhammad. It was Ezekiel. And God says, I'm going to show you what they're doing in my temple. You think it's bad? Let me show you what they're doing. And then he goes, he sticks Ezekiel at the north gate. And then he brings him into the inner court and there's a hole in the wall. And God says, dig a little more through that wall and peer through the hole into the inner sanctuary. And see what they're doing. And so Ezekiel sees some things that shocks him. He sees an idol in the gate. Okay? He sees 70 men of the ancients of Israel burning incense to Baal, the sun god. And he even calls them by name. There in verse 11, shouldn't we call false teachers by name? I mean, Ezekiel does. 
And then God says in verse 12, let me show you what the house of Israel does in the dark. They think that God doesn't see that the Lord has forsaken the earth, verse 12. Isn't that the cosmology of master? There's no God. We're in control. We're, we're stuck out in the middle of infinite space and there ain't, you know, we're, we do our own thing. Verse 14, Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Who is Tammuz? Tammuz is Nimrod. I talked about Nimrod in, in that message to the church at Pergamos years ago. Nimrod is Baal. Baal is the sun god. You see, these idol worshipers were heliocentrists. They looked at the heavens and worshipped it and not the Creator. Weeping for Tammuz. Verse 15, Then God said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see even greater abominations than these. And then he brought Ezekiel into the inner court of the Lord's house, where the priests were supposed to go. And he saw 25 men, and their backs were toward the temple of the Lord. And where were their faces? Toward the east. And they worshipped the sun. So the greatest of all abominations that God sold, told, showed Ezekiel that was happening behind closed doors were men with their, face, their backs to God and their faces toward the sun, worshiping the creature more than the creator. And guys, if we don't think that's what our culture does, we're as blind as those people by the river Kebar in the captivity. It is important. God, Satan wants man to worship the creature and not the creator. The only, you know, one of the few times in the Bible that the heavenly bodies or the planets are mentioned is when the people of Israel were bowing down to them and worshiping them. And they do it today. The arrogance of our society to think we know everything because we can zoom out on Google Earth and see these planets. They all look the same. I mean, it's like, and where's God? Where's God? We can't be like that. We need to question known liars. Why is it important? Because men worship the creature rather than the creator. And we need to call against that. We need to preach against that. We need to call them to repentance. And we need to make sure that we don't turn our eyes off creation, I mean off the creator, and put it on the cre uh, creature. Creation teaches us about God, it says in Romans 1. So wouldn't Satan want to mess up how we understand creation so we don't see God and learn about Him? That's what it does. Creation declares God and His handiwork, even the Godhead. But are we able to even distinguish that because we've bought into lies of known liars? That's something very important. When the Bible... Uh, says things that seem to run amok of what we're told or what we've long believed to be truth, then we need to just pause. We need to pause. Why can the media get us to ignore what we see with our own eyes about the 2020 election? Why is that a surprise? They've been getting us to do that for years Remember I mentioned Dwight D. Eisenhower's uh, famous speech uh, that was given, his farewell speech was given in 1961 when he left office. And he told that there was only one thing 
that could restrain the government, the, the, the military-industrial complex from taking over our entire lives and deceiving us. There was only one restraint. That was an alert and a knowledgeable citizenry. We've not been alert. We've not been knowledgeable. And that's why we can deny, we can just fail to believe what we see with our own eyes about the election and think, oh, yeah, Joe Biden won. He won. He's the president. Guys, we've not been knowledgeable and alert in the church. We've not been knowledgeable and alert in society, and that's why we've lost so much of our liberty. That's why Satan's been able to take up shop and move in in Washington, D.C. He's down there. He's got, his, he's got his office there in the Capitol because we weren't knowledgeable and we weren't alert. We need to be these things, and I believe the Bible teaches that, and that's why God gives us all these details here in Revelation. Guys, people won't teach Revelation. But it says in chapter 1, Blessed is he that hears, that reads, and keeps the things that are written in this book. Now, why would God tell us that there's a blessing that goes with hearing, understanding, and believing the things in this book if he didn't mean for us to understand it? It doesn't make any sense. It's not deep, dark secrets. We're going to see later in chapter 21 that these words are faithful and true. Not deep, dark secrets that you can't know. A couple of other interesting things before I move on to verse 2 is that Revelation 6.13 says some things that NASA's got a hard time explaining so we can either believe the Bible or we can believe no liars. Revelation 6.13 we're told that when God opens the sixth seal and the stars of heaven fell to the earth even as a fig tree cast her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. I'm told that the stars are going to fall to the earth. Now how is that possible if the stars are these giant suns millions of light years away that are 10 million times bigger than the earth? I don't know. Just It's worth questioning. We're told in Genesis chapter 3 that Eve was the mother. Why did, why did, why did Adam name her Eve? Because she's the mother of all intelligent life. That means life that has a spirit, a soul, and a body. Not a soul that is attached to its body and goes to the earth like a beast. But, but a, a, an intelligent being in which God breathed the breath of life and the spirit returns to God for judgment. Eve is the mother of all living, all intelligent life. But yet we're told that because NASA supposedly sees a blip in a telescope, oh, there's many earth planets around the universe with life just like ours. When I was in high school, I was taking a nap. And I recall this because it was at the exact same time there was all this controversy about Bill Clinton and his fornication and whoredoms. And there was that impeachment going on. And I woke up to my alarm, which the old school <clears throat> alarm clocks, the radio used to come on. I don't know if you older folks remember that. And it blared on and it woke me out of sleep. And it was at, it's always at the time NASA needs funding that this stuff comes up. So, but it told me that NASA had found evidence of life on Mars. So this was back in 90-something. I don't even remember. The 90s seem such, like such great days now compared to now. <laughs> Bill Clinton wasn't all that bad, I don't guess. But we thought it was so bad, but... But it said that NASA had found evidence of life on Mars. And I listened, and then I went and did some research. And what, what, what it was was a rock that had been found in Antarctica that they claimed was on the Earth for 30 million years. 
And that on this rock that had been on the earth 30 million years, there were supposedly some fossils that they think might have been on Mars because the rock might have come from Mars. And so the headline of the story said, NASA discovers life on Mars. Well, obviously not, but why would a headline like that be put out? To, well, to distract from the whoredoms of our president. NASA needs money, so uh-oh, we got to get something out there. Or to turn our attention away from God and what God's Word says, that the earth is the center of His plan and purpose for the universe and that we are accountable to Him and we're going to answer to Him. I'll sum up biblical cosmology this way and we'll move on. I encourage you to look into it a little more. I'm happy to answer questions. I don't have all the answers. The heaven is God's throne and the earth is His footstool. That's how you can sum it up. God is actively involved with His creation. He's not all camped out somewhere on the planet Kolob like the Mormon God. He's actively involved. And the earth is His. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all the inhabitants thereof. Psalm 24. God is not far. He is near. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh unto you. You don't got to get in a spaceship and fly millions of miles to try to get to God. Here's what I am 100% certain of, guys. Even though I don't know details and I have a lot of questions myself. Mark my words. I'll stake everything I've ever preached on this. We are not a random accident spinning on a random ball around a random star in a random corner of a random galaxy that is randomly flying outward from a random Big Bang explosion. We're not. And I know all of you in here agree with that. We're not. There's nothing random about any of this. Rather, the earth is the Lord's. It is the epicenter of His plan and His purpose. And so let's live like that. We're going to learn here in chapter uh, 21, verse 2, how we live like that. It's been modeled for us by Abraham in the men of faith. So John sees two things. Now, I'm going, I'm going to go just a few, you know, maybe about 20 more minutes. We're going to try to do something we don't normally do, at least when I'm preaching. If I start seeing folks nodding, I'll, I'll wrap it up. Verse 2. John sees new heaven and a new earth, no more sea. And what else does he see? He sees two things here. I saw the holy city. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So, a new heaven, a new earth, no more sea. And then what does he see? God's tabernacle coming down. That's why there's no more sea. There's no more sky barrier. There's no more firmament to separate God's throne. Job says that the firmament holds back God's throne. It's a place where time ends. Absolute zero. Zero degree Kelvin. All molecular activity ceases. There is no time. And it's frozen like a looking glass. That's what Job says. But that's gone And man doesn't build his way up like Babel to invade heaven and take God's throne. No, God comes down and sets up shop to dwell with his people. 
That's an amazing thing. You know, the government is now even admitting and talking about UFOs. Of course they are. The great UFO unveiling is coming. They're going to claim they've got evidence of UFOs and they're going to put it out there for us. And they're going, to th- they're going to lead us to believe that there's intelligent life out there that's a threat to this planet. What better way to get the whole world to come together to meet a common threat? They've already test-runned it with COVID. They've already test-runned it with the environment. The alien unveiling is coming. But my friends, don't fall for it. These, these creatures, these things that will be thrown in your face are no different than what the Greeks called Aries, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn... They're fallen angels that they named bodies in the heavens after that are here to deceive. Deceive us into thinking that this is not God's plan and that we can have it for our own. I don't doubt people have seen things and experienced things, but there is a spiritual world. You know, the the gods that the Greeks and the Romans worshipped weren't creators. They were demigods. They were fallen angels. Even the Hindu scriptures today, the Hindu writings, even admit that the gods in their pantheon will one day be destroyed. Their own scriptures admit this. I would preach this a lot in Nepal. Why are you worshiping what will one day be destroyed? Worship the creator who governs it all. But there is an alien invasion coming. And you guys need to remember that Satan knows what's coming. Just like the demons in the New Testament, they knew who Jesus was. And it's almost like these evil beings can't help but speak the truth. they got to put it out there in plain sight so that man has no excuse. These devils went around saying, what are you, Jesus? Why are you bothering us? We all know you're the Son of God. We know you're the Son of the Most High God. They know. So Satan knows what's coming. Antichrist knows what's coming. He knows there's an alien invasion coming. He knows. The only alien invasion that's coming to this planet is when the rightful owner of this planet opens up the heaven and comes down and sits on a throne and judges this world and takes possession of what belongs to him. And there's going to be a whole fleet of aliens with him. It's called the saints. Enoch said, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. And he's going to show all these people how wrong they were in the boastful, prideful things they said about his universe. And there's a mothership that's going to come with the army. The mothership is that holy city, the New Jerusalem. So Antichrist knows that. And he wants to convince you that that's a threat to you when we all know it's a great blessing. And he wants to unite the world to try to stop it. And that's what Armageddon is. So let's just remember the spiritual. The New Jerusalem. John sees the New Jerusalem in verse 2. The holy city coming down from God out of heaven. Now, Ezekiel sees Jerusalem remodeled and remade in the last chapters of his prophecy. But what Ezekiel sees, where there is the temple of the millennium that he describes, is Jerusalem. It's not the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven and there's no temple in it. But why should that be strange to us? New York, in the harbor there on the Hudson River, when it was settled, was not York from England. It was New York. You know, how many cities do we have called New Something? Well, 
The new something means there's an original city it's named after, most of which have been remodeled and rebuilt and still exist today. There's still a York over in the United Kingdom. Jerusalem today, there is the old city that's within the walls and it's four quarters, and then there's new, the new Jerusalem. West Jerusalem is mostly Jewish and it's very fancy, lots of buildings and hotels and markets and things like that. That's the situation we're going to have in both the millennium and the new heaven and new earth. Jerusalem is going to coexist with New Jerusalem. What is New Jerusalem versus Jerusalem, the city of the king? New Jerusalem is Abraham's dream. It's what the great heroes of the faith looked for. But they died not having received those promises. That because God has provided that same thing for us, and, we, and, and we're going to all receive it together. It says there in Hebrews 11, I've been re- memorizing this as I walk, that Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a strange country. He went out going against all conventional scientific wisdom of the day. He went out and he dwelt in, a strange, in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tents or tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob. Why? For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He wasn't looking for an earthly city. He was looking for a heavenly city. And then we're told later that Sarah, through faith, conceived seed. And then we're told that all of these died in faith, not having to receive the promises, but saw them afar off. Abraham saw a city built by God afar off. And we're persuaded of them and embrace them. And this is what's important. This is where we make application today. Because they saw God's promise afar off, they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. Now they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country. That is a heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for He hath prepared for them a city. That's it. Right here. He hath prepared for us a city, guys. Not just for us, but for all of those saints that looked ahead in faith and lived as strangers and pilgrims on this earth. God tells the church, this is not the first time New Jerusalem is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Go back to chapter 3 verse 12. It's the second time it's mentioned. The message to the church at Philadelphia. It's one of two churches that Christ has nothing negative to say. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him a new name. Guys, this is what the heroes of the faith looked for. And they knew it wouldn't be found in this earth. And so they lived as strangers and pilgrims. Moses. Moses, when he was born, when he was three months old, was hid of his parents by faith because they weren't afraid of the king's commandment. They were strangers and pilgrims. They disobeyed the tyrant. And the Bible says that was by faith. Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
esteeming or, or choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He knew what he looked for, a city whose builder and maker is God. Maker's God. He lived as a pilgrim and a stranger. Not vagabonds and fugitives wandering around aimlessly with no purpose and in despair, but pilgrims and strangers who live and preach as if this world is not their home. Their home is what John sees here, the holy city. Now, later in the chapter, the, the, one of the angels is going to show John the Lamb's wife, the city. And this city transcends. It's one of the things in the Bible that transcends the present creation into the new creation. We already talked about that. What other things do? The Word of God does. It, you know, God makes all things new, but there are certain things that transcend. The Word of God, the people of Israel, and the nation of Israel, and the earthly Jerusalem, it transcends. The new Jerusalem, the church, all of these things. And so it's going to go into great detail about this city. Guys, this is what we're looking for. This is why Jesus said, don't lay up treasures here on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. Lay up treasures in heaven where none of this stuff happens. This is Abraham's dream. He lived as a stranger and pilgrim. Why then are we clinging to this earth? Why then are we clinging to everything? We've got to turn on the news. We've got to listen to all this. We've got to worry about this and do this. And we've got to do this and this schedule and follow this and go there. Why? We're strangers and pilgrims, guys. There was an incredible message preached by Jonathan Edwards during the First Great Awakening. Uh, uh, what we need here in America today. And it's not sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's one of the famous messages that was preached July 8, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. But Jonathan Edwards preached another sermon about seven years later, June 26, 1748 in Northampton that most of you have probably never heard of. But if you're living as a stranger and pilgrim on this earth, you'd appreciate it. It's called God's Awful Judgment in the breaking and withering of the strong rods of a community. So if you want to go, it's not a very long message. Go, on, go online and look up Jonathan Edwards' strong rods. It's a very interesting message. He took his text from Ezekiel 19.12 about how God had taken good, solid, strong political leaders in Israel and he had broken them. And it was a judgment upon the people. It wasn't a judgment upon the man. It was a judgment upon the people. One of these was King Josiah. He is the only king in all of Israel's history where it is said he loved the Lord God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Josiah went out to face Pharaoh Necho and met his end in his 30s, very young. That wasn't God's judgment upon Josiah. That was God's judgment upon Israel. When God breaks and takes away good leaders, He's judging us. It might be argued that Donald Trump was a strong leader that did good things for our country, but God suddenly took him away. Edwards says in this sermon that when God by death, he was speaking specifically of death. This was on the death of Colonel John Stoddard, who was a God-fearing, righteous leader, political leader there in Northampton. And so Jonathan Edwards, some people say you shouldn't be preaching politics from the pulpit. Well, John Edwards did. He talked about a political situation that was affecting the community and made application of the Scriptures. And he said, when God by death removes from a people 
those in place of authority and rule that have been strong rods for the nation, it's an awful judgment of God that people... It's an awful judgment of God on that people and worthy of great lamentation. Guys, what we're living in is God's judgment on this nation. It ought to make us weep. It doesn't matter why strong leaders are removed, whether it's by death or by a stolen election, what, or, or how they were removed, sorry, whether it's by death or a stolen election. What matters is why. And it's because of exactly what I'm preaching every mile I walk this country. America is in big trouble with God. But God's. It's true. It's sad. It's cause for lamentation. But if we're living as strangers and pilgrims on the earth and not looking to Washington to save us, but looking forward to that new Jerusalem, we don't have to live in despair. We can lift up our voice like a trumpet and warn folks. I tell people, I'm just an old preacher. Nobody's special. Nobody knows me. God told me to drop what I was doing. I picked up a cross and I'm walking across this country to warn some folks. Warn some folks. But I would encourage you to go listen to the, or read that message. It's very short. And when righteous people die, we've seen it in our lives. Isaiah says everybody moans and weeps when righteous people die, but they don't consider that God's just giving them rest and delivering them from the evil days to come. Isaiah says that when children are your oppressors and women rule over you, you are a nation that is in judgment. Guys, children are our oppressors. The blue check marks, the Twitter mob. They, these people on Twitter and Facebook actually have gotten weaseled into a place where they control what we say and do because we're scared to death of them. And most of them are these little simps that are 30 years old living in mommy's basement with an acne beard. It's what they are. Children are our oppressors. And women rule over us. That's a bad thing. But we're strangers and pilgrims. We confess that. We live it. Let's look to that city whose builder and maker is God, just like Abraham did. Just like Abraham did. The Bible says that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is above, and here we see it come down. Paul says in Galatians that it is the mother of every born again believer. Whether that be an Old Testament saint who looked forward and was saved on credit, or whether that be the New Testament church who looks back in faith on what Christ did on the cross and is saved by debit. It's the mother of every born-again believer. Galatians 4.26 Just like Christ had a first advent and a second advent, the New Jerusalem will have a first advent, the millennial kingdom, and a second advent, the new heaven and the new earth. We ought not be laying up treasures here on earth, but laying up treasures in the holy city. John sees two things, and then God, John hears two things, and I'm going to wrap up. He sees the new heaven and the new earth, no more sea. That gave occasion for me to touch and prick your interest on a little biblical cosmology. Then he sees the holy city, the mother of us all, the, the great dream, the, the faith, the promise that those Old Testament saints looked for. And then he hears two things. First, he hears a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men 
And He will dwell with them and they shall be His people and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. Now I'm not going to get into the details of that. We'll save that for next week. We'll talk about tears and death and pain, and how we're, gonna, we're looking for a day when that won't be anymore. But we hear a great voice out of heaven, and then John hears the one sitting on the throne himself speak. What I find interesting about the great voice, in Greek, that comes from two words. Phone, which is voice, and mega, which is great. So in Greek, John heard a megaphone out of heaven that declared God's truth. Guys, God's truth needs to be spoken with a megaphone. So Rob Bell, if you're out there listening, I'm the bullhorn guy. That's me. All these Christian fools who listen to that idiot, that moron, that devil from the abyss of hell with his little Numa videos back in the 2000s a heretic of the highest order. And so many Christians couldn't, couldn't recognize it. And they watched his little bullhorn guy video and they claimed that people like us that went out and preached the gospel were a, were, a, were a detriment and a stain on the church. No, no, no. God's truth needs to be declared with a megaphone and this voice that John hears out of heaven is a bullhorn guy telling him some truth. Sometimes truth needs to be put on that half-mile hailer, Daniel, put up on the corner at Walmart, right? Yeah. Turned up loud as can be when them folks are walking out and tell them, right? It's a megaphone. That's where we get the word megaphone from, from the Greek. Big voice is what that means. Megaphone or phones megales. So John hears a great voice out of heaven and it tells us precisely why there is no more sea, no more firmament barrier in the new heaven and the new earth. Why? Because the tabernacle of God is with men. And He's going to dwell with them. And they're going to be His people. And God will be with them and He will be their God. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. Just like Christ fulfilled Passover at the cross, He fulfilled the unleavened bread in the ground, He fulfilled first fruits when He rose from the grave, uh, a Pentecost was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit came down. The Feast of Trumpets will be fulfilled at the rapture. The Feast of Atonement will be fulfilled when Israel wakes up and calls for Messiah. And the Feast of Tabernacles will be fulfilled when God dwells with His people, both in the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth. And guys, that's worth preaching through a megaphone, just like what John heard. So guys, I'm going to wrap up here today. It is 1230. It's a miracle. So we've gotten through verse 2 and mostly verse 3. And next week I want to talk a little bit about what won't be in the new heaven and the new earth. And we're going to be like Abraham. We're going to look for a few Sundays for that, to that city whose builder and maker is God. But guys, if you come away from this with a little swimming going on in your head, that's all right. But come away from this with a desire to search the Scriptures and to question known liars. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let's pray. 
Father, we're so grateful for Your Word that is so plain. Even a child can understand it. Lord, back when one of Your saints, one of Your faithful martyrs, William Tyndale, was used of You to translate the Scriptures into the English language, he was pursued and he was hounded by his persecutors. And he prayed, Lord, to God and said, Lord, if it be Your will, open Thou the eyes of the King of England so that even the plowboy can know more or as much of the Scriptures as the Pope. God, Tyndale was burned at the stake. But God did answer his prayers. He did open the eyes of the King of England later. And God gave the world an English Bible that's gone throughout the world and been the basis to translate God's Word into many languages. And I hold it here in my hand. Tyndale's death was strong judgment upon the society that day. But he saw a promise afar off and he believed it and he cried out to God for it. Lord, help us to be like that, to be like Abraham, to see these promises afar off. You showed the people of Israel the millennial temple and the, and the land of Israel in the times of the return of Messiah to make them ashamed of their sins. That's why Ezekiel was told to write. You don't show us these things to make us ashamed because our shame is taken away in Christ Jesus, His death, His burial, and resurrection. You show them to us to give us hope. And to empower us to be like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Moses, Moses' parents, Joshua, the harlot Rahab, Gideon, Samson, Barak, David, Samuel, and all the prophets who confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. So Lord, help us to live like that this week. I pray this word will be used in my heart, in the hearts of these brethren, Lord, and draw us closer to you to know truth from error to prove all things and to test the Spirit. Bless the food we're about to eat in our fellowship. And uh, just thank you that we have this refuge, Lord. Not even in a church building, but in the walls of a house that's so graciously shared with us. Thank you this refuge we have one with another from the world. Just like Noah had refuge in the ark. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.